I think Paul raises and answers a very helpful question for us in this little section, and that is how do we evaluate a minister of the gospel? How do we assess a pastor or a teacher of the scripture? People are doing this uh, all of the time. The world has certain stereotypes of pastors, that they are producers of hot air and of gas bags, a holy groan and a black suit. One description I read. I read another scintillating description of a pastor. As a pastor, this one individual said, is a mild-mannered man who stands in front of mild-mannered people and encourages them to be more mild-mannered. It's a scintillating view of the ministry and Christian life. But I think what we'll see if we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, a biblical basis for evaluating ministers of the gospel. Now, Paul lays down the basic principle in verse 6 of chapter 4, and then we will use this as a platform to come back to our study of the first five verses of this paragraph. Paul says in verse 6, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. That these things that Paul refers to here in verse 6 are the analogies or the metaphors that he was using in chapter 3. If you remember, he described the Corinthian church as God's field, a field that belonged to God. It was his field. And Paul and Apollos were workers in this field. And each of them had been given a different responsibility in that field. Paul was given the responsibility to sow seed in that field. Apollos' task was different. It was to come behind Paul and to water the seed that Paul had sown. Paul also said the church is like a building, a temple that God is constructing. And Paul and Apollos had different responsibilities in the building of that temple. It was Paul's responsibility to pour the foundation. The building belonged to God. He was the owner in the general contractor and Paul and Apollos were just subs and it was Paul's role to lay the foundation. Apollos came along behind him and was the one who was entrusted with the task of building a superstructure on that foundation that Paul had laid. Now Paul says, I want you to understand that, that Apollos and I each had different gifts, different responsibilities, different equipment, a different task assigned to us. And I've applied these metaphors to myself and to Apollos for your sake. This is really not for my benefit or for Apollos' benefit because Apollos and I, Paul says, are square on this. Apollos and I both understand this, this truth and this principle. There's no competition between Apollos and me. There's no comparison between the two of us. This is really for your benefit. So that, he says, you may learn the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. That is, do not go beyond what is written in your evaluation of ministers of the gospel. He says there's a standard of evaluation that is given to us in the scriptures, and that is to be the standard that we use in evaluating servants of Christ. And we are not to go beyond that standard in evaluating pastors and teachers and servants of Christ. Paul's point is that if we go beyond what the Scriptures ask of a pastor or a teacher, 
That's when we get into trouble. When we begin to expect things of our pastors and teachers that the Scripture does not expect of them, that's when we begin to get into trouble. Paul says it's at that point that you begin to take pride in one man over against another. When you begin to elevate one pastor or minister or teacher to the place where you begin to disparage other ministers of the gospel. Now, Paul is not saying it's wrong to be attached to a favorite teacher or minister. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless that attachment leads us to elevate him in such a way that we begin to be critical of other pastors and ministers and workers in God's field to begin to disparage their ministry and begin to think critically of them and to make critical comments of them to others and refuse to listen to anyone other than our a favorite teacher if someone different happens to show up on a Sunday morning, like, like this morning, for instance. <laughs> and it means not to elevate one teacher or, or minister of the gospel to the place where we begin to get into little quarrels and skirmishes with other believers about who is really the best teacher or the best minister of the gospel. Paul says, do not go beyond what is written. This had happened in Corinth. Uh, Paul, by his own admission in chapter 2, is not a powerful and charismatic and magnetic public speaker. Apollos was, and evidently Cephas. Peter was a man of some presence and, and power. And on the same platform with these two individuals, Paul did not look very, very well in comparison. He was sort of the Admiral Stockdale of, of Greece. And, and Paul says, the reason you have developed this critical and condescending attitude toward me is that you have gone beyond what is written in the way you are viewing me and evaluating me. So I think it will be helpful for us if we look at the standard that is given to us of evaluating God's ministers in the first five verses of chapter 4. Now I think we'll also find some real help for ourselves in dealing with a real critical question that all of us have to face. How do we deal with the opinions that other people have of us? We will constantly run into people through the course of our lifetime who will think critical things of us and will say critical things to us. How do we assess that? How do we evaluate that? How do we, how do we deal with that? Uh, Pat Boone was quoted recently as saying, there's just something about me that makes people want to throw up. So, yeah, maybe you can identify with that. But this can be a very serious issue at times. I counseled a, a young man several years ago who grew up in an abusive home. His father was physically abusive to him and to his older brother, repeatedly, all of his childhood, clear into adolescence. In fact, things got so bad that he and his brother would often escape through a bedroom window when they saw their father pull into the driveway. And they would stay out until they were, knew that their father was in bed and asleep before they would come back into the house. They were that afraid of the beatings that he would administer to them. This continued up until he was an adolescent. At about age 15 or, uh, 15 or 16, his father began to beat him again, and his, his brother, who was two years older and was now bigger than his father, punched his father out, cold-cocked him, and that, that brought the physical abuse to an end. But the verbal and emotional abuse continued. When I met with him, he was in his mid-20s. He was married, he had a child, he had a family, and yet... He still was being verbally assaulted by his father every time he went over to his father's house. And I discovered, to my surprise, that he was still going to his father's house three or four times a week. 
And yet every time he went to his father's house, his father would, would light into him one more time and be very critical and judgmental of his decisions and his choices and his lifestyle and his, and his personality. And I asked him, why do, you, why do you continue to do that? Why do you keep going back? And he said to me, and his son I'll never forget, he says, I keep hoping that the next time I go back, he'll tell me that he loves me. I keep hoping that the next time I go back, he'll say something kind and encouraging to me. And we hunger for that kind of, of approval. And, and when we long for it from certain people and we do not receive it, it can create a terrible kind of bondage uh, in us. But we receive criticism from all different sources. Perhaps you have members of your extended family, your in-laws or relatives, who for one reason or another are very critical of you and, and openly critical and make their judgment of you quite, quite evident. I was talking to a friend of mine this past week about uh, a painful experience that he recently had when he was in a circumstance where his motives were not just questioned, but, but they were challenged and they were, they were criticized. And, and, and he realized how dependent he had become on people thinking well of him and how much that meant to him to receive the approval of people. And that can create a kind of bondage for us. It's a terrible thing. And I think what we see as we look through this paragraph a way in which we can begin to break free of that kind of bondage to what other people think of us and break free from the bondage that, that, that traps us in being dependent upon the opinion that other people have of us. So let's work our way through the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says in verse 1, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Paul says the way that the church fellowship ought to view its ministers is as servants of Christ. Christ is the master. He is the captain. And every minister of the gospel is simply one of his servants. Now in a Household, there's very little attention and honor that goes to the servants in the household. That is reserved for the master of the house. And Paul says the master of this house is Christ. The attention and the honor belongs to him. We, Apollos and I, and every other one who ministers the word among you is simply a servant of Christ. If we elevate people to too high a, a place, uh, we'll, we'll be deeply disillusioned and devastated because every servant has has feet of clay and in some way will, will disappoint us. Debbie and I were saddened this week to discover that one of the, the Bible teachers that we listen to on the radio who's ministered to us greatly has had to resign his ministry because of an adulterous relationship. And that's saddening and deeply disappointing. If that man had been, has been elevated to any kind of a pedestal by his people, it can be absolutely shattering and, and devastating. Paul says that's why we must always look at ministers of the gospel simply as servants of Christ. The word that Paul uses for servants here literally means an under rower. And this is a, a term that's drawn from the Roman navy. Their warships are, are war galleys were, were, were built in three tiers and three levels. And the, the bottom tier, the lower tier, was reserved for slaves who would man these giant oars to propel these war galleys through the water. Maybe you saw that Far Side uh, cartoon several years ago. These two slaves are manacled and they're standing on the dock and here comes one of these Roman triremes in the harbor and one of the slaves looks at the other and says, huh, I wonder how they, wonder how they make that thing go. They, 
It was about to find out. The slaves occupied that lower tier, and the captain stood on an elevated platform at the front of that deck, and he set the cadence for, for the rowers, and it was their task to row to his cadence. They were simply under rowers. He was the captain. Now, Paul says that's how we are to look at ministers of the gospel, simply as under rowers, and Christ is the captain. So no matter how gifted, no matter how charismatic, no matter how talented, no matter how persuasive or powerful or compelling a particular teacher or minister of the gospel is, Paul says we are simply to regard him as a servant, an underroar of Christ. Now the second way we're to view ministers of the gospel, Paul says, is those who have been entrusted with the secret things of God, literally as those who are stewards of the secret things of God. If you have flown on an airplane, you have been served by a steward or by a stewardess. Now, a stewardess does not own the plane. She doesn't own anything on the plane. She is there to faithfully dispense goods that belong to someone else for your benefit, for your service. Paul says that's what ministers of the gospel are. They are stewards. They're there to dispense the property that belongs to another and they're there to dispense it to God's people as they have need for it. Another word we might use to translate this word is the word custodian. Custodian is some, someone who cares for property that belongs to another. Now, custodians perform a very necessary task and a very useful task, but there's very little honor that goes to custodians. That's reserved for the one who owns the property. So Paul says we are to treat ministers of the gospel with honor, we are to treat them with respect, but we are not to elevate them. We're not to idolize them. We're not to, to lionize them in any way. This uh, past fall, I took my interns through the ropes course at the Quaker Hill Conference Grounds, and part of the ropes course is what's called the ring. This consists of a telephone pole, which goes up about 30 feet into the air, and you're, the object of this is to climb this telephone pole, and then you get to the very top of this telephone pole, and you have to elevate yourself up to the very top with nothing to hold on to. And you discover as you get close to the top that that's a very small uh, telephone pole at the top, not much in circumference, barely enough room for your, for your feet to stand. And then you're to leap out into space and grab this uh, ring that is suspended in midair about six feet away. It's a real rush, uh, especially if you happen to catch the ring when you jump. But... <laughs> But, you know, you're standing up on top of this telephone pole and everyone in your group is down there on the ground looking up at you. And I realized as I stood there, wondering whether this breath would be my last, that there is barely room for one person on the top of this pole. And if you see statues that, that are on pedestals, you'll discover that those pedestals are designed for only one figure, to support one figure. There's only one figure that belongs on the top of that pedestal. And I think Paul is saying something similar. In the, in the Christian community, there's only one person who belongs on the pedestal, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. There's only room for one person on that pedestal. And, and we are not to elevate any servant of Christ to the position that only Jesus himself is designed to occupy. Now, he says what ministers of the gospel are, are are stewards of what he calls the mysteries or the secret things of God. Literally, the word is mysteries. As David explained a couple of weeks ago, the word mystery here doesn't refer to a mystery as we ordinarily think of it, some puzzle to be solved by human ingenuity. 
That's what the program Unsolved Mysteries is all about. I've got one for them, by the way. I've, I've puzzled over this for a long time. You ever know when you're driving down the road and you see a shoe on the side of the road? Why is there only one shoe? You know, what happened to that other shoe? That's an unsolved mystery. I hope they will devote some attention to that at some point. But when Paul uses the word mystery, he's not talking about that kind of mystery. He's talking about something that can only be known by revelation. Something which is secret and concealed from men unless it is revealed to them. Now, Paul says in chapter 2 that we apostles have received the Spirit of God. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things and deep thoughts of God. The Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we understand the deep things of God. And we apostles teach them to you, spiritual men, who possess the Holy Spirit and therefore can understand the deep things of God which are spiritually discerned. Paul says we are stewards of these mysteries. Now, Paul says there is one requirement of a servant and a steward. And only one requirement. That's found in verse 2. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Those who have been given a trust, those who are stewards of the mysteries of God, must be faithful in that task. Must be reliable. They must be dependable. They must be trustworthy in the way in which they handle these secret things. So it's required of those who handle the Scriptures that they be faithful to the Scriptures, that they be faithful in that task, that they reliably and faithfully and carefully and accurately handle the word of truth so it is dispensed accurately to God's people. Now, church fellowship has the right to expect that of its ministers, that they be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. That when they teach what the apostles taught, the church fellowship has the right to require that they be faithful to the word. That they not adulterate it, that they not twist it, that they not distort it in any way, that they not dilute it or adulterate it or accommodate it to what happens to be popular or, or current in our culture because it is required of a steward, that he be faithful. That's why it's so distressing when, when we see ministers who handle the word who will stand up and will justify homosexual relationships and homosexual marriages and ordain homosexuals to positions of ministry because it represents such a terrible distortion of the secret things of God. So a church fellowship has a right to require that of its teachers, that they be faithful in dispensing the secret things of God. Now, Paul, I think has something else in mind in this flow of thought. I think his point here is that every minister, and here this begins to broaden to include all of us because we are all in ministry. We've all been given gifts of the Holy Spirit. Is His point in the context is that every believer has been given by his Lord and Master different gifts. Every believer has been given a different ministry. Every believer has been given a different task, a different assignment. And that means the only question that is proper to ask of any minister of the gospel is this question. Is he being faithful to what God has asked him to do? See, that's really the only question that counts for me, and that's the only question that counts for you. The only question that really counts for you is this. Are you being faithful to do what God has asked you to do? 
Are you faithfully discharging the responsibility that God has given to you? See, the question for any minister of the gospel, including a pastor or any other servant of Christ, is not whether he is doing that as well as somebody else or doing it with as much flair or flash or pizzazz or results or energy as someone else, but simply this. Is he doing faithfully what God has asked him to do? Now, see, this is what drove Paul. This is what animated him as his desire to be faithful to his master. He wasn't comparing himself to anyone. He wasn't in competition with anyone. What drove him was this desire simply to faithfully discharge the responsibility that God had given to him. Now, I think this can be very helpful because we have this irresistible urge to compare ourselves to other people. If you're anything like me, generally you compare yourself to people that do more than you do. And we compare ourselves to others and we see the amount of energy that they seem to have. And we see the number of activities that they, they take on. We see the number of people that they entertain in their homes. And this sense of, of guilt begins to creep in and pervade because we are comparing ourselves to what someone else is able to do. Now, see, Paul's point is if you are a a steward, you are required to be faithful, but you are only required to be faithful to your master, to the one who has given you an assignment in his field. And so Paul's point is that God is never going to measure us by somebody else's standards. Realize that? God is never going to measure us against what someone else is able to do. When we stand before the Lord, He is not going to point to some other individual and say, look look at so-and-so. Did you do as much as they did? That's never going to be the question. He's simply going to ask us, did you do faithfully what I asked you to do? I went to a pastor's conference a number of years ago. It was hosted by the pastor of this mega church, And his special guest speaker for this conference was another pastor of a megachurch. And these two men had grown churches from nothing into huge churches. And there were many pastors there that were pastors of small churches in small communities. And the focus of this guest speaker was on church growth and how to grow a big church out of a a small one. I remember the host, a pastor, got up and, and said to these pastors, he says, listen, I do not want to hear any excuses from you about your situation. And the reason I don't want to hear any excuses from you about why your church is so small is that if this guy came to your church, I can guarantee you that he would double attendance in six months. You know, my heart just kind of broke for these, any of these pastors who would buy that swill and, and think that that's somehow the basis on which God was evaluating them. And measuring them. See, the question is never, what would, what, how would somebody else do in the situation that I'm in? But what is God asking me to do in this situation and circumstance? So that's what we are to concentrate on. We're to concentrate on what God is asking me to do and being faithful to our Lord and Savior and Master. And see, that's what begins to set us free from what other people think of us. It begins to set us free from being so dependent on the opinion that other people have of us. It's what begins to set us free from striving for a lifetime to get approval from certain people. We begin to be set free of that, of that slavish dependence upon the opinion of other people. 
Now that's what Paul goes on to say in verse 3. Notice how it played out in his life. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Hear what Paul is saying there? He says to the Corinthian church, as one of their ministers and pastors, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. In other words, Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, no offense, but in the last analysis, what you think of me really doesn't matter very much. Now, this is extremely important for, for a minister of the gospel to, to be set free from that kind of dependence upon what his congregation and fellowship thinks of him. Stuart Briscoe said at one point that there are three kinds of congregational pressure that really disable a, a minister. One is adulation that swells the head. The second, he says, is manipulation, which ties the hands. And the third is antagonism, which breaks the heart. Now, Paul says, one of the reasons that that I'm not destroyed by your opinion of me is your opinion of me really doesn't matter very much. I care a little, he says, but I care very little if I am judged by you. Now, there are those in the world that would take the same, same position. They care very little what other people think of them either, but that's because they think so much of themselves. They say, uh, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I've looked at myself, and I think I'm a hot rock. I think I'm a pretty cool guy, and, and so I really don't care what you think. But see, Paul's independence was not based on this. Notice what he goes on to say. I do not even judge myself. I do not even judge myself. So Paul says to the Corinthians, not only does what you think of me not matter very much, not even what I think of me matters very much. Not only does your opinion of me not count for much, not even my own opinion of myself counts for very much. I do not even judge myself. Now he wants to anticipate any possible misunderstanding of that. So he says in verse 4, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. When Paul adds this note that his conscience is clear, what what he is saying is that I am not aware of of any sin against anyone that, that needs to be taken care of. If I was, I would deal with it. In other words, what Paul is saying is this independence of what people think of us does not give us license to, to ignore criticism. It doesn't give us license to refuse to listen to people who may have concerns about us. It doesn't give us license to refuse to think about how our actions may affect other people. So it doesn't give us license to ignore what other people think of us. But it also places us, places us under no obligation to accept what they think of us either. Paul says, my conscience is clear. I've examined and evaluated my life, and I'm not aware of anything against myself. If I was, uh, I would deal with it. Because I I don't want to use this in any way to to be defensive against other people and valid concerns that they may raise against me. But Paul says, even though my conscience is clear, that does not make me innocent. That's not what acquits me. It's not what makes me okay in the eyes of the Lord. And the reason, very simply, is that conscience is something which needs to be trained. All of us have felt guilty in ways that are false. We feel guilty about things that, objectively, we have no reason to feel guilty for. 
Because our consciences accuse us of things that are, in fact, not wrong because consciences need to be trained. They need to be matured. They're not an infallible guide to what is right and wrong, despite you know what that eminent philosopher Jiminy Cricket says, let your conscience be your guide. It's not an infallible guide. And consciences can be dulled and they can be seared. There are people all over this country who every day do things that are perfectly appalling and feel absolutely no twinge of conscience at all. Their conscience is clear, but it makes it clear that a clear conscience is not what makes us innocent or quits us in the eyes of, in the eyes of God. And Paul explains why in the end of verse 4, why it's neither your opinion of me that counts nor my opinion to me that counts. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul says, what you think of me does not matter. I think of me does not matter because the only one whose opinion counts is the Lord. The Lord is the one who judges me. So that then becomes the question we need to continually ask ourselves, not what does someone else think of what I'm doing, but what does the Lord think of what I'm doing? How does he assess what I am doing? How does he evaluate what I am doing? Because his opinion... And his judgment is the only opinion and the only judgment that truly matters. So when others are critical of us, we are not to ignore their criticism. But on the other hand, neither are we obligated to accept it. What we are to do with criticism that comes from people is to take it to the Lord and ask the Lord to help us sift through what we have heard and sort through the wheat from the chaff. And ask the Lord, is there, is there any way in which you are speaking to me in this? read a uh, Calvin and Hobbes uh, recently, which I thought was intriguing along this line. Calvin and Hobbes are out walking in the, in the forest, and, and Calvin says to Hobbes, says, you know what I pray for? And Hobbes says, what? Calvin says, this is what I pray for. The strength to change what I can, the inability to accept what I can't, and the incapacity to tell the difference. And uh, Hobbes says, you should lead an interesting life. And Calvin says, oh, I already do. (laughs) Well, that kind of prayer is not going to get us very far. But we see in just a moment that the Lord has the capacity to bring to light the things that are hidden in the darkness and to expose the motives of men's heart. Paul says he will do that one day, and he can do that now. So when we receive criticism from people, that's what we're to do with it. We're to take it to the Lord and say, Lord, the only thing that really counts in all of this is not what this individual thinks of me. And Lord, I know that the thing that counts in this situation is not what I think of what I've done. The only thing that really matters is what you think of how I've handled myself. And Lord, I want you to bring hidden things to light and I want you to expose the motives of my heart that I might understand this from your vantage point. A friend of mine received a critical letter just this past uh, week and wasn't sure how to respond to it. And so Debbie and I talked uh, with her and suggested that she take this letter and do what Hezekiah did in Isaiah 36 and 37. Just lay this letter out before the Lord. Say, Lord, you can read. I want you to help me think through this letter and see this from your vantage point. I want your evaluation of me. And as she carefully prayed through that letter, she came to the conclusion that there was, there was no accusation in this letter that had substance and and had merit, and she was able to very graciously uh, reply uh, to that effect. See, that's how we're, we're to handle criticism. It's not to ignore it, but to take it to the Lord and ask him to sift through and help us to understand. Now, Paul says in verse 5, 
Because the Lord is the one who judges. Therefore, he says, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He says, judge nothing before the appointed time. Now, Paul is not talking here about issues of disobedience to the Scripture. We'll see in just a couple of weeks that in those circumstances, the church is required to judge. In fact, Paul uses the very same laws and says you are to judge those who are inside the church when the issue is disobedience to the Scripture. But when it comes to style and to approach and to demeanor and personality and to vocabulary and approach and strategy and so forth, we are to judge nothing, Paul says, before the appointed time. Now, the reason Paul says we are to judge nothing before the appointed time, the reason we are not to make a final assessment about any minister of the gospel before the Lord returns, the reason we are not to be critical and condemning and, and denigrating of anyone involved in ministry for their lack of vocabulary and their lack of pizzazz and the way they dress and their style and personality and so forth, is that we simply do not know enough to make that judgment. Despite the fact that we have this irresistible urge to do it. The World Series started last night. It occurred to me this past week as I was watching the championship series that all of us are umpires at heart. And we love to call balls and strikes on other people. And we love that. Paul says, do not do that before the appointed time because you simply don't know enough about anyone else. And he says, you don't know enough about yourself to be able to make an accurate assessment of anyone. Therefore, he says, wait. He doesn't say don't ever judge. You notice that? He doesn't say don't ever judge. He says don't judge now. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait to make your assessment of other servants of Christ and ministers of the gospel until the Lord returns. For, middle of verse 5, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Now, as we talk about this just for a moment, I want you to think of one believer that you are critical of. Okay, if you can't think of anybody, I've got some suggestions for you. <laughs> but think of one believer that you are critical of as we work our way through these phrases. Now, what Paul says about your criticism of that believer is that you simply don't know enough about them to make a final assessment about them. There are things hidden in the darkness that you don't know anything about. And when those things come to light, it'll change the way you look at that individual. You don't know the motives of the hearts of men. And when those motives are revealed on the day that the Lord returns, it'll change your assessment about that individual. You simply don't know the things that are concealed in the darkness. You don't know the things that have shaped them in their past, the kind of abuse that they may have suffered, the kind of damage that may have done to them. They may be doing, doing an exceptional job with damaged goods, and that's concealed from you. may even be concealed from them. They may not be aware of the things that are shaping them and influencing them and, and driving them because they are hidden in the darkness. There may be things that they have done that are concealed from you that you know nothing about, and if you knew, it would change your assessment of them altogether. Remember a number of years ago, I had an older friend who was in ministry, and he kind of struck me as old school, kind of older generation. He wasn't really hip and wasn't kind of with it. And 
I, I, I nurture this kind of critical spirit about him and his ministry and his style and approach to ministry for a number of years and until God gave me the opportunity to witness firsthand the work that, that he was doing. And, and I saw the people whose lives had been affected through his ministry. And I saw the respect that they had for him. And I saw his character and his integrity and his righteousness and his substance and the way in which God had used him in ways far beyond any way in which God will use me. And uh, I realized just how insolent and arrogant that attitude I'd had, had been and had to confess that as sin before the Lord. But see, if I hadn't been exposed to his ministry, if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I probably would still be carrying that same attitude of criticism about him to this day. Paul says, judge nothing before the appointed time until he brings to light what is hidden in the darkness. And this also has to do with motives, the plans and the intentions and the things that drive people. So there are things about others around us that we can't see, the motives, the things that matter to them. We just don't have that kind of insight. We need to wait until the Lord brings that to light. Maybe someone that you know that has a very abrasive personality and perhaps concealed inside that personality is a heart that really longs to please God and longs to honor Him. But the personality is so abrasive that you can't see past that into the heart. Paul says, wait until the Lord returns and brings these motives to light. Back in the Old Testament, David had a strong desire to build a temple for God. He never got to do it. And God says to him at one point, David, I see that you want to do this for me, and I commend you for that. I value that. I praise that. That even though you didn't do it, you wanted to. And that counts for something in my kingdom. Remember the story that Sam Erickson told when he was here about the... uh, man who bought the package of cookies in the airport. Remember he bought that package of cookies and he sat down to wait for his flight and a college student just to see the way to his surprise began to help himself to his cookies. And he grew progressively more agitated as the student continued to help himself to his his cookies. And finally the college student gave him a smile and broke the last cookie in half and left half of it there for him and went off to catch his flight. And he was just steamed at this college student for for the selfishness and the thoughtlessness of this until he got up from his chair to catch his flight and there as he picked up his coat found the bag of cookies that he himself had purchased concealed under his coat. And it completely, in that instant, it completely changed the way he viewed that college student. Did a complete 180 because things that had been concealed were brought to light. And he was able to see this man as he actually was. Now, Paul says that's going to happen one day, and let's wait for that day to happen. came across a poem that I thought was, was helpful along this line this week. I'd like to read it to you. Judge not the workings of the mind and heart thou canst not see. What looks to thy dim eyes as stain in God's pure light may only be a scar bought from some well-won field where thou wouldst only faint and yield. Now, if you're anything like me, you begin to think of the personal implications of this. Paul says that the Lord will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. And you think, that's going to happen to me. And boy, when that happens, I'm going to be in some deep guacamole when that happens. But notice what what Paul says and what he doesn't say. The way we would expect verse 5 to go, 
is like this. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his judgment from God. Each will receive his condemnation from God. Each will receive his scolding from God. Is that what Paul says? Now look carefully at verse 5. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. This is a really striking thing. I think what Paul is saying here is that in many ways, God is going to be easier on us than other Christians are. I read this past week of a pastor who, uh, who taught his sermon one morning, and a woman had been affected by it, and she came up to him after the service to, to, to thank him for, for, for those encouraging words. And the pastor said, well, don't thank me, thank God. And she said, well, I thought about that, but it wasn't that good. Okay. <laughs> but see, what Paul says the Lord is going to do is he is going to sift through our entire lives. This is why I love about my VCR is the speed search mechanism. You can kind of get past all the boring parts all of the news breaks, all of the station IDs, all of the commercials, you know, for cars you, you couldn't afford even if you wanted them, and get to the good stuff. And see, in some way, Paul says that's what the Lord is going to do with us when we stand before him. He's going to sift through all of life, and he's going to help us identify those things that weren't worth very much, and he'll pitch those, and then he'll concentrate and kind of move into slow motion for those parts of life that are praiseworthy in his eyes. And I think all of us are going to be surprised on that day, that there will be certain things that we thought that we really did right. And he would say, no. And I say, I look into your heart. See what's going on in your heart? You're thinking about how good this is going to look in the eyes of other people. And you're thinking about how righteously you're, you're handling this. And I wasn't really proud of you at that moment. But look over here. Here's a time when you just quietly and humbly depended upon me. Here's a case where you were thinking about buying something and concealing that purchase from, from your spouse, but you didn't do it. And I commend you for that. You said, Lord, I forgot all about that. So here's another time where you were just about to lose your temper with your child, but you exercised self-control. And I commend you and I praise you for that. You say, oh, Lord, I forgot all about that. The Lord says, I didn't. I commend you for it. And there was a time where you were tempted to remain silent. And it took courage and boldness to speak up. And you, you felt fearful and intimidated, but you spoke up anyway. And I commend you for that. And we'll say, Lord, I forgot all about that. I'll say, I didn't. And here's a time when you just wanted to defend yourself so badly you could taste it. But, but you kept counsel and trusted me to defend you. And I commend you for it. I'll say, Lord, I, I remember that. The Lord says, I did. See, each one will receive his praise from God. And that's the key thing, is receiving praise from God it means so much more than praise from men. A friend of mine went to a Hawks game this summer. If you can believe this, the Boise Hawks spent good money to fly a man up from Phoenix to dress up in a gorilla suit and act like a three-year-old for nine innings. And you know, you know the crowd loved it. They cheered the Phoenix gorilla wildly. Kids were mobbing him for, for autographs. Now think about this for a minute. The same people who would applaud a guy who dresses up like a monkey, start saying nice things about you, you know, exactly how much weight, you know, should we give to that? Paul says the thing that ought to animate us 
and to drive us is to do those things that are pleasing to God, to be faithful to the task that he has given to us, to play for an audience of one. Many of you know that uh, Ray Steadman passed away this past week, a man that God used to touch many, many lives, including my own life and the life of, of my wife. And I know for a fact that the crowning moment of Ray's life The crowning moment of his life is not the day when he founded Peninsula Bible Church. It was not the day when he published his first book and it was reviewed ecstatically in Christianity Today. It was not the day when PBC was profiled in in national magazines as a model church. crowning moment of his life was not when he received praise for his exposition of the Scriptures. I can guarantee you that the crowning moment of his life took place just a week ago when he stood in the presence of Lord Jesus Christ who welcomed him with open arms and said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Would you stand with me and we will pray and be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, we approach you as a fellowship this morning and we ask that your Holy Spirit would take these truths and burn them deep into our hearts. Lord, I know that there are many in this room who have been wounded and devastated by the critical opinion of others. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room right at this moment who is suffering from that. And I ask, Lord, that you you would take the truth of this scripture and and bring it home to their hearts and minds to realize in the depths of their heart that what other people think of them really matters very little. Pray that you would communicate to them your approval, your acceptance, your delight in them, your eagerness to praise them, your commendation of them. And I pray, Lord, for us as individuals, and I pray for us as a church fellowship, that you would help us, each one, to recognize those things that you have asked us to do in order that we might be faithful to you, to serve you, to serve you alone, to care about what you think and what you alone think. We ask that your Holy Spirit would assist us in this regard and bring to light things now that are hidden in darkness that you want us to understand about ourselves and bring to light motives that are hidden in our hearts that we might recognize them and see them. Lord, we pray that you, you would give us a deep desire to be motivated purely and simply by a desire to be faithful to you and to one day receive praise and commendation from you. These things we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior and Captain and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.